FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook, and joining me in the studio today is Dr Ross Walker, who really needs no introduction for anybody in Australia, but I will for our overseas listeners. Dr Ross Walker is an eminent practising cardiologist with a passion for people and health, with over 35 years experience as a clinician. For the past 20 years, he's been focusing on preventative cardiology and is one of Australia's leading preventative health experts. Considered one of the world's best keynote speakers and life coaches, he's the author of seven best-selling books, a health presenter in the Australian media, including regular appearances on Nine's Network's Today Show and A Current Affair. You've got Sky News, Switzer Business. He also has a weekly radio show on Sydney's 2UE, 4BC and 2CC with other regular segments on 2UE, 6PR, 4BC and 3AW. You're all over everywhere, Ross. Yeah, all over the place, mate. Welcome to FX Medicine. Thanks, I can't, Andrew. can't be more honoured to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Now, today we're going to be talking about coenzyme Q10, which yep. I've got to say is like the poster child of cardiac natural medicine, let's mm, say. Yeah, you could say that. That and fish oil. That and fish oil. But fish oil's had a little bit of a downturn oh, of late. No, and... it shouldn't. I think that's that's all nonsense, yeah. the downturn of fish oil. But that's another subject. Let's talk that's about That's another CoQ10. subject. But CoQ10 has not been without its controversy. And I, I've seen even like high-dose studies, you know, having quote-unquote no effect depending on what they diagnose. Mm. Um, but I think first, uh, can you take us through why you first looked at integrative medicine yep. as opposed to standardised cardiology? What What... What changed your mind? Well, look, I, I think the Buddhists talk about the middle path. And I, I think that anyone who goes to extremes of anything, whether it's the extremes of orthodox medicine or the extremes of complementary medicine, the answer to me is always somewhere in the middle. And so I, I really get a bit disturbed about medicine, orthodox medicine in many ways, because if you can't fix it with a script pad or a scalpel, then it doesn't work, which is the basic premise of medicine. And I don't agree with it. Mm. Because I've had some enormous benefits over the years using various aspects of complementary medicine, all evidence-based. And th this is the issue which I'd be delighted to talk about as we go on. But to me, you've got to have some solid science behind what you do. But just because it's not in a script pad or a scalpel doesn't mean there isn't solid science, which I certainly think there is for coenzyme Q10. Now, you've done a lot of work with a, a plethora of nutrients in your career yep, yep. Um, for cardiovascular outcomes. Why is there still so much to learn and why should we be bothering given the recent improvements in, and there've been real improvements mm -hmm. in say the new, you know, the Sartans and things like that. So the new cardiovascular pharmacological agents. Yeah. Well, the, the Sartans, the, that's the ARBs, the angiotensin receptor blockers. I mean, that's a big deal, but statins have been the focus of most cardiologists. And I personally believe they're the most over, over prescribed drugs on the planet. 
And the reason they're overprescribed, it, it's all been a bit of a con job going back to the Ansel, Ansel Keys years, where Ansel Keys in the 50s, he was this strange biochemist from Minnesota. And what he did was look at the, the link between cholesterol, fat and heart disease in 22 countries. He ignored the results of 16. Yes came out with the results of six in a thing called the seven country study. Now, if you can figure that one out, you're a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> and and so only in six out of 22 countries was there a spurious link between cholesterol, saturated fat and heart disease. But then the food companies got onto it and the food company says, aha, we can now put this processed package muck masquerading as food with graffiti written on it, like low fat or no cholesterol and sit on a shelf for, for months and make squillions of dollars out of that. And then the, the pharmaceutical companies got the antidote to cholesterol, i.e. statins. So what they did was block the major step in cholesterol production with a drug, and they've done studies and studies over the years by curing this so-called non-disease, i.e. cholesterol, high cholesterol, yeah. with a drug. So people go into a doctor, and here's how it works, Andrew. They go into the doctor and say, doctor, I've got cholesterol. Oh, I can fix that, Lipitor, next. And the person walks out and goes, oh, phew, I didn't get a lecture about being fat. And the doctor goes, oh, phew, I didn't have to spend 15, 20 minutes talking to the people about lifestyle. It's the perfect solution. The problem is that perfect solution doesn't work as well as everyone thinks. And also that perfect solution has a bucket of side effects, yeah. which have also, also been downplayed as recently as a big article in The Lancet that came out from Oxford suggesting that all of this hoo-ha about statins causing problems was, not, was nonsense and all of the benefits haven't been portrayed to the public as much as they should have been. And, and to me, that was very disturbing because there was also some, and I'm not accusing anyone of anything here, but there was, there was a strong suggestion, a, a big um, article came out in the UK Mail suggesting that the lead author of the study was paid millions of dollars by the pharmaceutical companies involved, he didn't deny that. He said, oh, yes, but I put it all back into research. So you, you can make up your own minds about that. So I get very disturbed about the whole focus on cholesterol and the, the nonsense that taking a statin is really the most important aspect of preventive cardiology because here's the deal. If I give you a statin in a standard dose, I reduce your risk for a cardiovascular event by about 20 to 30%. Mm -hmm. But... I think with a potential of about a 10 to 20% side effect rate. The, the randomized controlled clinical trials that weed out all the people are going to make the drugs look bad maybe have a 5% side effect rate. But in the real world where I live and I practice, I can tell you it's much more than that, much more than that. Mm. So that's the first thing. Yep. But if I then get you to practice what I call the five keys of being healthy, you cannot be healthy and have any addictions. So anyone who smokes is unhealthy. Anyone who drinks too much grog is unhealthy. Anyone who snorts cocaine is unhealthy. Number two, good quality sleep. Seven to eight hours of good quality sleep every night is as good for your body as not smoking. Number three, good quality eating and less of it. That's all we need to know. We all eat too much food. Absolutely. And, and often we eat the wrong food. And the, the best food to eat is natural food. If you can kill it and eat it straight away or grow it in your backyard, it's good for you. And after that, all bets are off. Number four, second best drug on the planet, three to five hours every week of some form of testing exercise. And number five, beats everything else to hands down, is a thing called happiness. Now, if you do those five things well, all of the data that's been done over the years on combining those five different keys to, to a healthy life 
reduce your risk for all diseases, not just heart disease, mm. all diseases by 70%. So lifestyle modification is twice as powerful as anything a doctor can do for you. And that's what I say to my patients. Don't give me too much power. All the power is on that side of the table. It's your decision. That's really important. So I looked at that and I thought, well, that's important, but is there anything else we can do for people that has less harm? And that's where I went into integrative medicine because I think it's integrative. Let's not discard the very good bits of orthodox medicine that you remembered at the start. We've had enormous advances mm. in cardiology, my specialty, with statin therapy to some extent, but also with stenting and with better techniques of bypass, other medications as well. There's tremendous things we can do for people, but if my patients aren't going to put their effort in, why should I bother? Now, I've already got five different questions, five lines yeah, of questioning. So sure. I guess one of them was, with the good bits of complementary medicine, mm. you mentioned fish oil just before. There's yep. some been some good work done on magnesium orotate. There's some interesting work coming out on vitamin K2. Absolutely. Um, all of these sort of different, dare I say the word antioxidant or polyphenols or whatever, but yeah. there's a specific one, and we mentioned it first, coenzyme Q10. Yes. But it's not one entity. Mm. And we were always thought, that it was one entity, at least in Australia, mm. for many, many years. We started off with re extremely low dosage. I think it was 10 milligrams we yeah. first had. Then we were allowed 150. Now we're allowed the new kid on the block. Yeah. So I think we need to go through first, what's CoQ10? Sure. Okay. Co CoQ10 is, is basically a fat-soluble antioxidant. It's a fat-soluble uh, energy producer that works very much in the mitochondria. So we all know that the mitochondria are the fuel packs in the cell. And I say to my patients all the time, it doesn't matter what sort of flash car you drive. If you take the petrol tank out and you have no petrol, the car won't move. Mm. And it's the same thing with the cell. The mitochondria makes a thing called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And without that ATP, your cell doesn't work. So when you breathe, the oxygen, the glucose combines in the mitochondria to make this ATP. Now, one of the main drivers of that ATP production in the mitochondria is coenzyme Q10. It works on the mitochondrial electron transport chain, and it is vital for normally, normal functioning of your mitochondria. And here's the problem. The problem is there's a lot of foods that have CoQ10 but you've got to have a huge dose of those foods every day to keep the levels up, to keep the cells working well. And here's the key essence of, of my work over the years. And this is just an obvious fact, Andrew. Our body was physiologically designed to wander around a jungle with a spear for 30, 40 years looking for food. Mm. So natural environment, constant movement, but being a hunter-gatherer sucks. You die at about age 30, 40 because a saber-toothed tiger rips your head off or you die of some infection. Yep. So what's happening now we're living, on average, double our use-by date, which is age 40. So when you get beyond the age of 40, things break down in the body. So there's a key enzyme, as far as CoQ10 goes, called diaphorase. And what does diaphorase do? It converts your ubiquinone, which is the oxidized, inactive form of CoQ10, to ubiquinol, which is the reduced active form of CoQ10, the only thing that actually drives that mitochondria. So for years, we've been pushing the whole ubiquinone line, which has a very weak effect, especially as you get older, whereas really what we should be doing is focusing on ubiquinol, the active form that actually does the stuff that you want it to do. 
So just going back to ubiquinone, the yeah. oxidized form, yeah. like, you know, the early work from um, uh, Langsjuen and Carl Fokers, sure. the original researcher, um, I remember speaking to a cardiologist and he was saying he was really disappointed in that level of research that was mm. coming out because nobody looked at things like ejection fractions and things like sure. that. I also think there was a real issue with dose in those days as well, yep. though. Yep. So t can you take us through what, what the early work was showing in a positive frame, yep. and why maybe there were some shortfalls in that early research? Well, the the early work was which which again, as you say, people were being underdosed with the inactive form. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that a lot of the work showed it didn't do much anyhow. Now, a cardiologist saying I'm disappointed it didn't show an improvement in injection fraction. Again, there are many more subtle things that happen in cardiology, and this this is the problem to sort of digress, but bring this into the the ubiquinol discussion. This is the problem with, with when you look at randomized controlled trials, they're very applicable to pharmaceutical therapy because I see pharmaceutical therapy like a high-performance motor car, gets you from A to B very quickly, but with the potential of crashing and killing yourself. Mm -hmm. I see supplements like a bicycle, A to B much slower, but you get some exercise along the way, much better for you, but it takes you longer to get there. So you can't have the same rules for the car that you have for the bicycle. And in the same way, you can't have the same rules for the supplements that you have for for pharmaceutical medicine. And so when you look at a lot of these trials, they're actually bringing in the same randomized controlled evidence-based uh, attitude for supplements. And it doesn't work like that. And And especially when you're using small doses of something like ubiquinone, you're not going to see much benefit against a powerful statin drug, as an example, mm -hmm. or with people who've got severe heart failure, as an example as well. But even then, some of the studies, the early studies using ubiquinone, and even some of the recent studies haven't been that bad. Mm. Whereas when you use the stronger ubiquinol, the studies I think are quite spectacular. And even then, some of the recent studies, for example, that have shown a reduction in statin myopathy, I think everyone's missing the point there. You see, again, doctors make the diagnosis of statin myopathy when the CK, the muscle enzyme level, rises at least three times. Now, that might be the case for some people who are reacting very badly to statins, but I can assure you, 10 to 20% of people who take a statin drug get problems with muscle pain, stiffness, weakness, cramping, and sometimes even atrophy, loss of muscle bulk but it isn't always related to a high CK level. Mm, so yeah. doctors say, oh, there's no CK level, so therefore this has got nothing to do with statins, the person's aches and pains. And look, there's a reasonable argument. As you get older, we all get aches and pains. That's pretty common as you age. But I've seen so many people put into a statin where the statin makes the aches and pains that they already have so much worse. But they mightn't have a rise in CK, so doctors are ignoring the fact that that could be the statin. And within a few days of stopping the statin, the aches go away. Now, here's what I do. I give people ubiquinol, all my patients on statins. I give them at least 150 milligrams of ubiquinol, sometimes 300. I'll tell you where I go to the 300 in a second. Mm -hmm. And I give them magnesium orotate with that. And it's not the magnesium that's important there. It's the orotate yeah. because the orotate works in the mitochondria on a thing called orotic, not for some people listening, <laughs> erotic. It's orotic acid metabolism, which then lifts the CoQ10, CoQ10 levels in the mitochondria. So that's why I use the two things in combination. I've got to say to you, I would still say, say that about 10% of patients who are given statins are intolerant. 
And even then with the bigger doses, they can't. Now, why? Because around 10% of people have a genetic abnormality in their muscles that predisposes them to myopathy, to statin-induced myopathy, mm. to other forms of myopathy, to polymyalgia rheumatica. So again, those people just cannot tolerate statins anyhow, no matter what you do. But if you want to minimize the risk of muscle issues in all the other people, use a good dose of ubiquinol, not 50 milligrams a day, not 100 milligrams a day, 150 milligrams a day. Now, I've got to say, I take ubiquinol and Pharma Mag Fort, which is my favorite version of magnesium orotate. I take them myself purely for energy. I'm not on a statin. I'm 60 years old. I've got a zero calcium score, so I don't need statins. I don't care about my cholesterol levels because I have a zero calcium score. All males at 50 or females at 60 should have a calcium score, not an intravenous CT angiogram. Now, this is another shock that should be absolutely forgotten by people yep. is the intravenous CT coronary yeah, angiogram. You can now do that. Yeah, but you have the intravenous injection and it doesn't give you any any extra prognostic advice over the calcium score, but it involves an injection, it involves obviously the possible dye, reactions. Uh, possible reaction mm. to the dye, but it also involves, in most cases, unless you're using a very high-powered modern machine, a 320 slicer or a 120 uh, dual chamber slicer, unless it involves those sort of machines it does involve sometimes up to 300 chest x-rays of radiation as opposed to four or five from a calcium score, and it makes your wallet $500 lighter. So you don't do intravenous CT coronary angiography as a screening test for heart disease because it isn't. Right. But coronary calcium scoring is. It's simple, low radiation, low cost, and males at 50, males at 60. So if you've got a zero score like me, you don't need a statin. So, so first off, with, for the general punter out there, yeah. um, if they wanted to pay for this, yep. um, do they have to see a cardiologist no. before they no, can no, get no, no, benefit? No, 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 no. It's, it's outside of Medicare. They can actually go and get one without a, rate, without a referral if they want to. But I think it's, it's worthwhile discussing it with their doctor mm, first. But mm. a lot of doctors still don't understand calcium scoring as opposed to intravenous CT coronary angiography as opposed to cholesterol. Now, there was a big study in the U.S., Last year, 5,000 people followed for 10 years. 77% of the people in that trial fitted the US criteria to be on a statin. Half of them had a zero calcium score. And over the 10 years, their event rate, their heart attack rate was so low that the conclusion of the trial, the statins were worthless in those people. In primary? In primary prevention. prevention. Oh, look, look, I have no dispute. If you've had a heart attack, a stent or a bypass, or on a coronary calcium score, you have a calcium score that places you in the 70, the highest 25th percentile of risk, so above the 75th percentile range, you should be on a statin as part, as part of your management. Mm. Part. Part. But the five keys of being healthy and some supplements are a good thing. So as far as statins go, everyone goes on to 150 milligrams of ubiquinol, PharmaMag Fort, one pill twice a day, just to keep up the CoQ10 levels in the mitochondria. And I take it purely to give me energy. So that's where I use it in that situation. Now, I have to ask about ubiquinol, ubiquinone. Yeah. We're taking it as a tablet. Now, ubiquinol is the active yeah. form capsule. You're yeah, right. Yeah, sorry. We're taking this supplement as uh, a form that's inside the cell, but we're taking it as a capsule, is that stable? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's stable. It's very well absorbed. It all comes from the one supplier. So it's not as if you're getting varying amounts of stuff. You're getting it from the one supplier. It's all high quality stuff. Ubiquinol is is a very good, stable, very bioavailable compound. And it's something that I think we should all be thinking about. I, I just think there's no further place to be using ubiquinone when you've got such good data. But to, to give ubiquinone its, it's due, I don't want to be you know, totally biased for one thing here. I'm just giving the science. Mm. There was a thing called Q-Symbio, which was released a few years ago. Q-Symbio looked at, I think it was over 200 people with, with significant heart failure, gave them ubiquinone, a big dose, 300 mm. milligrams a day. And over two years, there was a 50% reduction in all-cause mortality and cardiovascular events. That's pretty good for a supplement. Mm. And that's randomized controlled trial. Just recently, a big study's come out of, out of North America where they took people over the age of 70, gave them 200 milligrams a day of, of ubiquinone and 200 micrograms a day of selenium for four years, then followed them for 10 years. Same information, 50% reduction in all-cause mortality and cardiovascular death just by taking two supplements for four years. Now, that's that is- really interesting because that, that sort of um- – Talking about the blending of CoQ10 mm. with selenium, that sort of goes into the work of Frank Rosenfeld. Oh, look, Frank, can I say about Frank Rosenfeld? This man is a genius. He's done some seminal work over the years on all of this. He, Frank's a real thinker and he's done some amazing work with, I mean, he's Mr. CoQ10 along with, with Peter Langston in, in the US. Yeah, yeah. And and so if and Frank understood before any of else, the rest of us did, he understood that you need to blend things. And it's, it's a bit like taking one big thing, it does affect all the other things if you're not, if you're not taking other things with it. That's why multivitamins are good for you. <laughs> so, so because multivitamins have a blend of different supplements rather than one thing. So I don't think anyone should ever just take the one thing and think that's the be all and end all to anything because there is no miracle drug. So how greater an activity does ubiquinol have over ubiquinone? Oh. I, re- I remember some, you know, some touts of eight times more bioavailable, but yeah. is it really that much a difference oh, clinically yeah. Yeah. in patients? No, it's, it's, it's more bioavailable, but it's also, it's also the active version. You mm. don't have to rely on your own body's dying enzymes mm. systems, mm. the diaphorase, to do the conversion for you because it's the only thing that works. Ubiquinone doesn't work until it's activated to ubiquinol. Yeah. So, so therefore it is much stronger. And so that's why I'm saying I don't think there's any real place for ubiquinone anymore. Yeah, well, now that it's available, it was always yeah. like we'd like it, but we could never have it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I see the analogy here with synthetic versus natural vitamin E. So if you, if you take synthetic vitamin E, it's a weak antioxidant with, and that's where all the, the anti-vitamin E stuff started from the meta-analysis mm. of Edgar Miller in 2004 in the Journal of American Medical Association. It was, most of it was done on synthetic vitamin E, which I agree is useless and shouldn't be used. Use the natural one, which is stronger and does, and does work. And there is good, strong evidence base around that as well. So there's still a lot of controversy, though, in the orthodox medical circles with regards to CoQ10 in statin use. Indeed, right. there was a, a, a Mayo Clinic paper that said, um, I think it was 600 milligrams of ubiquinol didn't work. But I thought what was interesting is that there was a little line under it that said, you've got to be wary of pharmaceutically funded papers. And it's in that paper. <laughs> well, you see, I have, I've got to say, and this is, um, this is my own personal view, and, and look, the Four Corners expose on this a few months ago backed this up. I wouldn't take supplements out of America. And the reason I wouldn't is that American supplements are made to food standard. 
Right. Whereas Australian supplements are made to pharmaceutical grade. And that's the difference to me. When when they did a study of, I'm not saying all American supplements, but I'm just saying the vast a majority. Risk. Yeah, yeah. They looked at 300 different supplement companies in America. The vast majority had contaminants in the supplements. The vast majority, you weren't getting what it said on the side of the bottle. Whereas in Australia, it's completely different mm. because we, we do have the pharmaceutical grade supplements. So you do know that what you're taking you're going to get the right dose. So so I I worry about studies on supplements coming out from the US. Now, some of the US researchers, some of the greatest researchers in the world, incredibly great work that they do, but I, I don't think a lot of the conservative researchers in the US understand supplementation. As, as was shown by, for example, the heart protection study where they looked at vitamin E, vitamin C, and a, and a multivitamin, and they use synthetic vitamins. Mm. They use synthetic vitamin E. So mm. therefore, to me, that study was nonsense. The, the, for, is that the one that talked about that a, a multivitamin had no improvement on cardiovascular yeah, risk? exactly. I'm sorry, but when would any healthcare practitioner, natural healthcare practitioner use a multivitamin to reduce cardiovascular risk? Well, well, you should. And let me tell you why. Uh, there's this little known university in the US called Harvard, which for the, <laughs> mm. for the last... Yeah, one of the greatest institutions of the world, but I'm only joking. But for the last 30 years have been doing the male physician's trial, the nurse's health study. And when they looked at multivitamin use up to 10 years, did nothing, absolutely nothing. So you can't take a multivitamin for a few months and go, well, I didn't feel any better, so therefore it's useless. But when they got to 10 years in the males, there was an 8% reduction in cataract and common cancers. Now that's not much, but 8% for taking multivitamin is pretty good. When they got to 15 years in the nurses, there was a 75% reduction in bowel cancer, a 25% reduction in breast cancer, a 23% reduction in cardiovascular disease at 15 years. But they've just released the 20-year data in the males, randomized controlled trial for male physicians who didn't start with cardiovascular disease and looked at the incidence over 20 years. 44% 44% reduction in cardiovascular disease in the males taking a multivitamin every day, but you've got to have commitment. You've got to be in it for the long haul. You've got to take it for 20 years mm. and beyond. Yeah. So what I'm saying to people is that I think the evidence is there for all supplements, whether it be multivitamins, fish oil, and certainly with things like ubiquinol. So getting back to ubiquinol, there was a, a study done where they gave people 50 milligrams or it could have been 60 milligrams of ubiquinol for 12 weeks who had myostatin muscle pain Mm -hmm. with raisin CK, and there was a 44% reduction in their pain scores over that period of time just by taking the the ubiquinol at what I believe is a substandard dose. So I think if we started doing proper trials, and the trials have not been done yet, where they've used 150 milligrams of ubiquinol. I thought the Markov paper was using ubiquinone. I didn't see the ubiquinol there. So the Markov paper, I thought, used ubiquinone, which, again, I'm not surprised that doesn't work. Mm. So I would like to see a very good, well-done, randomized controlled trial of 150 milligrams of ubiquinol in people taking statins. And here's another thing. One of those papers looked at Zocor or Simvastatin, 40 milligrams. Now, Simvastatin being a fat-soluble statin, which I personally don't use. Lipitor. You prefer the water-solubles. Atorvastatin. And simvastatin, in my view, cause more side effects. That's my own personal opinion. So I don't use those at all. And I think they cause my, more myopathy, more problems with the brain. The, the blood-brain barrier is a very fatty membrane. So you take a fat-soluble statin, get straight across into the brain. 
And I think ubiquinol doesn't stop the neurocognitive effects, but it certainly stops the muscle effects and it also stops the increased risk for diabetes from some of these as well, for some of the statins as well, by its effect on the GLUT4 pathways within the mitochondria. Yep. So, so there's a lot of things that you can do to minimize the risk of statins, and I think ubiquinol and magnesium orotate are a very important part of that. So the water-soluble statins, yep. can we list those off? Yeah, it's resuvastatin, Crestor, or pravastatin, Pravacol. So what I do, the way I do this is if I've got somebody who's got very high cholesterol, Crestor is the strongest, then Lipitor, then Zocor, then Pravacol. So very high cholesterol, I go for, for Crestor or resuvastatin first. If they've got lowish cholesterol but a lot of coronary disease, I'd use pravastatin, pravastatin with ubiquinol. Something else I use is a thing called bergamot, and bergamot comes from Calabrian oranges. So this is oranges grown on the southern ionic strip of Italy, and I'm one of the lead researchers in this in the world. And we've done a study, uh, Professor Malachi and, uh, from, from Italy and myself have done a study where we took people with high cholesterol, gave them resuvastatin, dropped their cholesterol 56.5%. We cut that in half, added bergamot, we dropped their LDL cholesterol 52.5%, but a bigger rise in HDL and a much bigger drop in triglycerides. So half the dose of Crestor, half the, half the dose, including the bergamot, the, the bergamot twice and you get day. better cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. So I think all people who are on statin should be taking water-soluble statin at, at as low a dose as you can to get a targeted cholesterol. So if they have cardiovascular disease, clinical cardiovascular disease or high calcium score, then I want to get their cholesterol below 4, I want to get their LDL below 1.8, I want to get their HDL above 1.5, and I want to get their triglycerides below 1. Because you do that, once you lower triglycerides, even though the triglycerides themselves may not be an issue, they're a marker for small LDL. And this is this is the, where size is important, yeah, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Small is bad. People keep telling me, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> and me. Small is bad, large is good. And that's the, with, with LDL cholesterol and with HDL. And that's the, that's the basic way of thinking of this now. And bergamot, nicotinic acid, and also ubiquinol changes you from small to large LDL, which is exactly what you want to do. So I think it's a combined approach here rather than just looking at one thing. Does this combined approach answer the issue of residual risk when you just achieve target levels with a statin well, well, sort of thing? Well, look, look, can I say to you about residual risk? I think one of the problems with residual risk is that we rely too much on statins to do the job. Residual risk doesn't include all the people who put an effort into their lifestyle. So so to me, it's putting that effort in. is 70% of your management, mm. 70%. Mm. And how many people are really getting those five keys? I'll say them quickly again. No addictions, good sleep, good eating, regular exercise and being happy. How many people are really doing those things well? Mm. I don't think too many. So if you can have some, and, I, and I've been doing this job for over 35 years, and I can tell you, I've got two groups of patients. There's a line in the sand. I've got the people who follow my advice and the people who don't. Yep. And the people who follow my advice, I cannot tell you the last time one person had a problem who followed my advice to the letter. I mean, I'm not saying absolutely perfect, yeah. but did all the lifestyle stuff took their low-dose statin, took their bergamot, took their nicotinic acid, took their ubiquinol, pharma-magfort, vitamin K2, as you mentioned, all of these things. Uh, and I can't remember the last time someone like that did that and went on to have a significant vascular problem. But I can tell you buckets of people who couldn't lose weight, who couldn't throw away the cigarettes and, and weren't that good at taking their pills, 
these people just wipe away bits of their heart, whittle away bits of their heart to their premature death. It's mm. so obvious to me. So when, when people talk about residual risk, I just think it's because they're not doing all the stuff they should be doing. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything magic about this, but we, we do know, for example, there's about 43 different loci on your DNA and with those 43 different loci, only 28 are coded for blood pressure and cholesterol. So there's a whole lot of other things that are missed out that we don't see in a typical blood test or checking someone's blood pressure. Yeah, yeah. And we can't do anything about those things that might be affecting myeloperoxidase or your nitric, oxid, uh, nitric oxid, oxide synthase or any of those sort of things, endothelial function, et cetera. We can't specifically treat those things at the moment. We may be able to in the near future, but we just can't do it at the moment. So what I'm saying is use every trick you have. That's why I use all of those things combined targeted for people. And we haven't even discussed the MTHFR gene, which is a no. topic of another story. <laughs> now, I have to ask, because obviously, you know, people come to see you because they know about you. They know mm. who you are. Mm. So I've got to ask you this question. You you drew the line in the sand. Yeah. What's the percentage of people that follow the stuff compared yeah. to those that don't? I'd say probably 40, 60 people who follow, 60 a don't. Because look, they're coming to me for a particular reason. It's a self-selected population. Yeah. So a lot of the people just want standard orthodox medicine, go to standard orthodox cardiologists. That's mm. fine. And and they still do pretty well with that. I'm not saying there's nothing good about standard cardiology. It's fantastic what it does for people. But the people who come to me already come to me knowing that I'm going to talk to them about lifestyle. They've mm. heard me on the radio or seen me on TV. They know, know I'm going to talk to them about supplements. So, so they are self-selected. So it's hard to say what would happen in the general population because I don't know. I just see a self-selected people who come and see me. Now back on to CoQ10. Yeah. What, obviously CoQ10 is in almost every cell of the body. Indeed, is it not in any? Well, Are there any cells no, that yeah. where CoQ10 is not? ATP, I guess. No. But no. then there's uh, membrane protection, correct, in mm-hmm. RBCs? Yeah. So what other uses does ubiquinol have apart from cardiovascular? Oh, oh, look, I, I think it has a, a broad range of uses. One thing I, we haven't really spoken about, which I, I'd like to mention before we just move on to the other uses, is in, in specific cardiac failure. You right. see, Peter Langen's done a, a lot of very elegant work, as has Frank, Frank Rosenfeld, elegant work looking at left ventricular dysfunction, which is a big killer. If, you, if you've got heart failure, that's bad news. Now, Peter hasn't done a randomized controlled clinical trial. Peter Langen hasn't done the randomized controlled trial, but he's shown enormous increases in ejection fraction with big doses of ubiquinol linked to the serum levels of CoQ10. So if I've got patients I put onto ubiquinol, I want to see that I'm getting their their serum levels up to a high level, not just sort of running around the one or two range. I want to get up to the three to four range in their bloodstream. So I will measure CoQ10 levels in those people and you see the big jumps up with ubiquinol. And I'm seeing in my practice... Seeing I've been doing this for the last few years, that ubiquinol has been freely available yep. in Australia. Yeah. I see in my practice now significant improvements in ejection fraction, which is the the end the end game in fixing up the heart. But there are other subtle things you look for as well. So when I, when I hear a cardiologist say oh, I didn't do much to injection fraction, but it may be affecting diastolic function and end systolic volume and all these other things that that really are out of the realm of general practice. But, but certainly things we look for as cardiologists. So so to me, ubiquinol is very, very, very good for heart failure. And I, I put all my patients on standard anti-failure therapy, 
the cardio-directed beta blockers, the um, the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs, but I also put them on ubiquinol and farm mag forward, uh, magnesium orotate. So so I do that for there. But what else can can ubiquinol do? Well, it it drives the mitochondria, and as you say, the mitochondria is in a whole lot of other cells. I think it's good for people who have muscle disease. So if I've got people on steroids for polymyalgia rheumatica, I'll also give them ubiquinol and pharma mag forward to lift up the CoQ10 to protect those mitochondria. But we also know that, for example, that there's a big aspect of mitochondrial disease in Parkinson's disease. Now, they my, used huge doses in that, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. 1,200 milligrams of ubiquinol a day, and they got some significant benefit. Now, I interviewed recently on my radio show Professor Caroline Sue from the Colling Institute at yeah. Royal North Shore yeah, Hospital, yeah. and she was talking about all the, the varying different types of mitochondrial disease we're seeing, whether that's causing epilepsy or or some sort of neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or anything like that. There's the, the big group of myopathies that, that haven't been really well characterized. Even just the whole concept of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, mm. I'm now using ubiquinol, pharmamagfort, and all my patients who have those conditions as well. So to me, and diabetes, um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, there's been a lot of different studies with a whole, ubiquitous conditions for ubiquinol. So ubiquitous, ubiquinol, I think it's a good mix. Mm. Now, I have to ask, um, there's been quite a few pharmacists getting in trouble from doctors, G mm. usually GPs, mm. who are saying people are taking a statin, but they're not, they haven't necessarily got myalgia, and why are you giving them CoQ10? There's yeah. no evidence for yeah. that. Yeah. Tell me, where, what's the ethical line? What's the responsible line for practitioners to recommend, prescribe mm. um, coenzyme Q10 ubiquinol yep. with a statin or to refrain from such? Well, this, this to me is the issue about medicine. I mean, the doctor's in charge? I don't think so. The, who's in charge is the patient. Now, again, I have a, a cup that sits on my desk that says, do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. <laughs> right. And it's a great cup. But, I, but equally, I think that people are now so much better educated about matters medical. There are plenty of TV shows, radio shows, and a whole lot of other educational areas like Google where people can get information. And people are, are reading this stuff. And again, to get away from the bias that many orthodox doctors have, that if you can't fix it with a script pad or a scalpel, then it doesn't work. I think a pharmacist is well within their rights to say, well, look, it's my view as a pharmacist that you should take ubiquinol with the statin. Now, that's the pharmacist's opinion. The doctor has no right to tell the pharmacy he has no right to do it. But again, with many aspects of complementary medicine, you don't have the very, very solid randomized controlled trials, but I'm saying the evidence to date is pointing to a huge benefit from this. And as a practicing clinical cardiologist, I see so many people who are getting subtle and not so subtle side effects from being on statins. Any caveats from using CoQ10? There was a, a an old, I think it's been debunked now for mostly, mm. at least um, despite the um, consistent warning on the CoQ10 bottle, and that is to use it with warfarin. Yeah, look, again, I've never seen any issues combining ubiquinol with warfarin. There, there's all this theoretical nonsense that goes on. It's a, it's a bit like saying to somebody who's having an operation or you've got to stop your complementary medicines because you're going to bleed. Well, hang on, Frank. Frank showed that one. What is it? The day before he stopped yeah. fish oil. Yeah, the day before. But I, I but I, <laughs> I don't know that I even do that anyhow because um, I don't think there is any good evidence, clinical evidence, mm. that people do have increasing bleeding. If you look at all the work on on all of these supplements, the 
bleeding risk, the side effect rates are so low that I th- I think we we're really losing it when we do that. It's a bit bit like suggesting that that when someone's on chemotherapy that they should stop all their supplements. Now I hear that all the time. Now that there are there are definite interactions between some things and so for example we all know about grapefruit and statins. That's yep. one thing. But but there's a little little known interaction between green tea and a thing called velcade, which is used for myeloma. Now green tea can block the action of velcade. So people who are given specific things, it's important to check that there, that your complementary medicine won't won't affect the benefits of the treatment mm. you're on. But mm. but the warfarin ubiquinol interaction, I think, is very spurious, and I've never clinically seen it cause any issues at all. And the point is with that, you can always have your INR measured anyhow just to see what that's doing. It's not difficult. Mm. I think the issue is warfarin will never be um, down-regulated in preference to uh, ceasing a supplement, which is an yeah. interesting rule, but anyway. Yeah, but but and and look, let let me say about something like warfarin. Warfarin is one of the best drugs we have in cardiology. It's just very very difficult to use and very very difficult to take. So we now have the newer oral anticoagulants, no which I'm 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 using quite a bit. Uh, rather than warfarin because the patients don't like being on warfarin in the same way the patients don't like being on statins. Mm -hmm. Even though doctors love them, I think doctors give statins far too much power, patients probably give them far too much pain, and I think with everything, the answer's in the middle. I've got to ask about side effects. So, you know, there's been noted very rare, but they do occur things like rashes with CoQ10. Yeah. But an interesting thing that I've seen, and it's extremely rare, I would have Mm. seen it five times Mm. in my life, would, would have been this... Upon taking CoQ10, reasonable dose, within an hour, two hours, an extreme fatigue. Has there been? Can you explain that from any biochemistry? I've seen Look, it, and they, they, these people say, no, it's definitely that. And they're supporters of I, CoQ10. I, I suspect say. the reason for that is the same reason that if you have gout and I give you allopurinol, I bring out the uric acid from the tissues, mobilize it, and go straight into your joint. And and probably, you attack, probably yeah. in the same way, if your CoQ10 levels are extremely low, what what then happens is you're putting an imbalance by taking CoQ10. It's all in the serum. Yep. You're getting an imbalance of the CoQ10. It hasn't yet gone into your mitochondria to do this stuff. So probably there's some imbalance in the body that acutely causes fatigue. Uh, and I do know, for example... One of the theories of chronic fatigue is that it's a brain disorder, not a psychologic disorder, but it's a disorder of the center in the brain that monitors fatigue levels. And that center is very important. So, for example, oh. if, you look at, if you look at people who run a marathon, yep. at the end of the marathon, everyone collapses apart from the guy who won. What does he do? A he victory lap. Yeah, yeah. Now, why have the, is everyone collapsing? Because their fatigue center is protecting the rest of their body because they, they know if they keep running, those muscles are going to be destroyed. So the fatigue center says, look, stop, I've had enough. Yeah. But the guy who's won, he's overriding that fatigue center because he's so excited about winning, he can run around again. Yeah. So it's not that the, the muscles have said, I can't do anymore. The brain's saying to the muscles, I've got to protect you by saying you're incredibly tired. And that's one of the theories of chronic fatigue. So maybe when people take acutely ubiquinol, it does something to that fatigue center to say, oh, I'm even more tired until you get an equilibration. And it's, it's a bit like anything. I, I started meditating in 1994 and I've been meditating every day since and I couldn't imagine a life without meditation. 
But for the first six weeks, it drove me nuts. I was getting more anxious meditating because I think all of my all of my stresses and anxieties came up to the surface with the meditation, but now I couldn't imagine a life without it. So I think if people do get that response with their first few doses, stick with it because you'll probably find it'll, you'll get the best response to it in the long term. Any last um, hints, tips, um, warnings or red flags or anything that that practitioners need to look out for when instituting coenzyme Q, Q10 as ubiquinol? Yeah, look, I, I don't think there is anything apart from what you said about the potential for fatigue. I, I just think it's a, it's one of the, the big step forwards now in integrative medicine. I think it's something everyone should be thinking about because as we get older, we our, our ubiquinol levels drop in our cells. So I think probably if, if you say, well, who should be taking it? That would be the final thing I'd like to to add in there everyone over the age of 50 who wants to get a bit more energy that's number one anyone who's on a statin anyone with cardiac failure anyone with any of the other conditions we've discussed it can help a lot of these things sportsmen for example one of my mates just finished a um a marathon did a personal best and i told him before the marathon take 600 milligrams of ubiquinol and he got his personal best i'm not saying it was the ubiquinol but i'm just saying it was a pretty good advice i, I think and he did very well so I think it's something we should all be thinking about now as part of our armamentarium to treat people. Dr. Ross Walker, I can't thank you enough for joining us on FX Medicine today. It's, it's, it's so great to have somebody that dedicated their life to not just the heart health, but the whole health of their patients for, dare I say, decades. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just so honoured to have you on the show and take us through the real clinical uses and the benefits of taking ubiquinol. So thanks very much oh, for joining us thanks, on FX Andrew. Medicine. I hope everyone's found it very useful. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.